Romans 6. What do you think is the most common designation for a follower of Christ? What, what do you think that most common designation is? If you guessed Christian, that would be very logical. That makes sense, right? However, uh, that is, the word Christian is actually gone only three times in the New Testament. So you have other choices. Like, for instance, well, let's go with sheep of his flock, salt of the earth, light of the world, children of God, um, citizens of heaven, members of his body. And all of those are found in the New Testament. But by far, the most predominant way to refer to a follower of Christ in the Bible, in the New Testament, is what? Slave. What? No, slave. It's got, it can't be, really? Slave. That's, that's exactly right. The Greek word is doulos. It literally means someone who is completely controlled by another person. If you find the word doulos all over, you can refer to physical slavery. But over 40 times in the New Testament, doulos, slave, refers to the relationship between a believer in Christ and God, who is the divine master. And then you have about over 30 times when the, the apostles and the New Testament writers are explaining the Christian life, they do so when they use the word doulos to refer to Christians and their relationship with the sovereign God. Now, you need to know something that the word Christian, that name Christian, that was actually used by the outside world to refer to those who were believers or slaves of Christ. They referred to them as Christians. And for the New Testament believers and the first century believers, their identity, they saw themselves as literally slaves to God or slaves to Christ. We have come a long way from that. When's the last time anybody has ever referred to you as a Christian as a slave to Christ? We've moved completely far away from that. And as Paul is making his way in his argument in Romans chapter 6, and as we've been walking through this book, we're at chapter 6 where he talks about sanctification, what it means to literally be set apart to God for his holy purposes. We come to this subject. And I'm going to ask you, why do you think it's essential that every single person really knows who their master is? Why do you think that's important? It's for this reason. The life that we lead depends upon the master whom we serve. The life that we lead depends upon the master that you serve. And who your master is, is going to define certain realities in your life. And the first one is, as you come to chapter 6, verse 15, is that the master of our lives determines the devotion of our hearts. Just picking up his argument and right where we left off last time, chapter 6, verse 15, after he already said in verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law but under grace, then the question arises. Verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Shall we just go about and do whatever we want in our life? Because after all, it's all by God's grace that we're saved. Grace is speaking of God's unmerited favor undeserved blessing, the riches of relationship with Christ. Since God is gracious, he deals with us, with us in the new covenant. We're no longer a part of the Mosaic laws where we have to follow certain ceremonial laws or religious laws. We're under grace. Jew and Gentile alike can come to know God. If, it's, if relationship with God is all about grace, then why don't we just sin as much as possible? In fact, we're making God look good because he pours out more grace and we just keep sinning. He gives grace, we sin. Is that the Christian life? Is that what we have been called to? Well, Paul tries to make it about as clear as possible. 
Look at the end of verse 15. He uses the most direct and strongest Greek idiom for repudiation. And he says, absolutely not, may it never be. Grace doesn't free us up to do whatever we want. Now, I know it's been kind of twisted that way because it actually appeals to a mindset that is growing in popularity among people, and that is to have a self-centered faith. That is in contrast to a Christ-centered faith. See, a self-centered faith, you get to pick and choose. You can customize your spirituality. You can make it fit your life. Uh, if you remember back in Greek mythology, remember back in junior high days, you're studying those little Greek figures and Greek gods and goddesses, there was a one figure in mythology named Narcissus. Remember Narcissus? Narcissus, what he's doing one day when he's drinking from water, he came to the stream and he saw his image in the stream. And he was so enamored with what he saw. He literally was filled with self-love. And as he's admiring himself, he, he actually reached down to kiss the image. And when he did, there created all these ripples and the image went away. And he vowed never to do that again because he loved the image he saw. The problem was, he died of thirst. And that's when you hear of psychologists or people referring to narcissism or a narcissistic individual. Hopefully you're not in context with that conversation. But if it's so, they're saying that you're so self-centered. Everything that you do, if you're a narcissist, somehow it all makes its way back to you. Even when you're trying to be nice and do good for others, you do it with the motive that somehow I'm going to gain from this. So time, attention, admiration, devotion. If you're a narcissist, it's always because you feel like you can benefit from them. And those with a self-centered faith distort grace and twist it to their own ends. And, and you can do that. I was reading of a, a pastor. He was called late at night by a young guy in his church, and this guy was all broken up. He's like, man, I've got to talk to you. And it's urgent. So they set up a breakfast meeting the next day. And so they're having breakfast. And uh, like, so what's going on, you know? Why is it that we have to meet so early in the morning here? And this young guy said, well, man, I was on a business trip. One of my female colleagues, we were hanging out in the bar, probably drinking too much, laughing, having a good time. And one thing led to another. And I ended up spending the night with her. And uh, pastor's like, whoa pretty troublesome when you have to hear those sort of things. And he's like, this pastor's like taking a deep breath. He's thinking about this guy's young wife. They're expecting another child. They got their couple kids. He's like, oh man, you know, like maybe a thought came like, maybe I should just try tell him like, okay, you just need to, you know, fix this and let's kind of move on. But he's like, no, 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 no. If I allow him to think that you can just gloss over this, that will set up spiritual realities in his life where he will just continue on to sin and it'll literally destroy him, his family, and everything about him. So he said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask him some questions to make him think biblically. So he asked him this first question. He said, have you, have you prayed to God and literally confessed your sin and asked for forgiveness and pardon? Have you? Like, young man across, just stone-faced, just looking at him. He said, well, have you have you confessed this to the young woman and just said, listen, this sin, it was totally wrong and it will never happen again. Have you? Stone-faced, didn't say anything. And the pastor said, well, have you, have you confessed your sin and your wrongdoing to your wife? 
Does she know? Nothing. I said, have, have you gone and gotten tested to find out if you have like AIDS or something like that? Nothing. And then the guy, that young guy, took his plate of food and shoved it across the table. And he said this, quote, I came for grace and you are giving me discipline. I'm disappointed in you, pastor. And the pastor's sitting back here like, whoa. And he was completely just kind of wondering and shocked. Not because like, did I say the wrong thing? Did I go about this wrong? No, what he wondered about is how in the world could an intelligent guy like this believe that the promises of grace means that you never have to face consequences for your wrongdoing. How did he come to that conclusion? Where did that come from? You know where that came from? It came from the mindset of 615, a self-centered faith where you do basically whatever you want. When you come to Romans chapter 6, God is going to strip down, break down any of the vestiges of a self-centered faith to develop a Christ-centered one. And if you want to know the truth about the gospel, you don't, the gospel isn't you invite Jesus, or like we, it's popular to say down here in the South, just accept Jesus. Accept Jesus, and he can become like the co-pilot in your life, the life that you're flying and making it work. I mean, pretty cool to have God as a co-pilot, right? That works, right? It's not about, well, you just add Jesus to your life, and it's nice to have a nice spiritual companion on the journey, or that you that you kind of just invite him to kind of share into your experiences. The gospel is literally you turn from self and sin and you trust Christ. You want to see the gospel? Look at verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? You are a slave, slave to someone or something. If you are a slave to sin, it results in what? What does it result in? Verse 16. You you might want to know this. Because if you are a slave to sin, it results in death. But on the other hand, if if you are obedient and you see yourself as a slave to God, it results in righteousness, right living, right behavior. And so you've got this contrast that is set up. And, you know, like slavery, for instance was the number one institution that was understood throughout the entire Roman Empire. Everyone understood Roman slavery because 35 to 40% of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves, okay? So it was everywhere. And it's, it's quite different uh, than just kind of the, the extremely vile practices that were uh, occurred here in the North America in the 17th through the 19th century. Um, slavery in Rome... You had all these people who were slaves, but most of which could actually earn money. And they also could get to a place where they could actually buy their own freedom. Many of these slaves were entrusted with great amounts of assets, and they, they actually basically did the work for their masters. And they were very sharp, oftentimes were educated if the master saw fit because they could advance his purposes. In the, North, in the New Testament, you need to understand something. The New Testament always assumes that trafficking of human beings is a sin. Always wrong. Practices here in the United States, sin. Absolutely. Complete violation. And we don't, we don't like even the word slave, right? And so what you'll find in the English translations of your Bibles, most of them take that word doulos and it appears everywhere. And so we have other words. Bond servant, bond slave, uh, servant. 
We don't like the word slave. Other, if you read in other languages, it is always very clear. They just, just put the word slave out there. But we like, ugh, man, we regret our past. We don't, we don't like anything about it. We don't even want to use the word. And yet, in the New Testament, the predominant way to refer to a Christian would to refer to him or her as a slave of God or a slave of Christ. And there was outworkings and manifestations of that. For instance, the apostles, they prided themselves in being known as what? Slaves. So remember how the book of Romans begins? Anybody remember how it begins? Paul, a doulos, translated bondservant, New American Standard, should be slave. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Being a slave wasn't for a spiritual neophyte or somebody that was just kind of weak. No, that's the orientation of the believer. Not my will, but yours be done. I mean, even if you look at the book of Revelation, you know how the, the believers are referred to even at the end? Servants or doulos, slaves of the Most High. Servants of God. That is the orientation. We have completely lost it and omitted it. John MacArthur actually wrote a book on the subject titled Slave. It did not become a bestseller, okay? Wonder why? We don't, oh man, we don't, no, 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 not gonna work. And in it, he actually gave the following five parallels between biblical Christianity and first century slavery. And he points out that this is a relationship where it had exclusive ownership, complete submission, singular devotion, total dependence, and personal accountability. The only evaluation that mattered would be the masters. And so if you're a slave to sin, and that's your condition right now, let me, let me just make it real public. I'm going to tell you how you live. You live by, bound by guilt, fear, and misery because you are literally a slave to sin. Sin is your master. Of course, you never call it that, but that describes your life if you are a slave to sin. On the other hand, if you're a slave of righteousness, like the text is talking about, you're literally a slave of God, well, you have the ongoing experience and the development of love and joy and peace and self-control and kindness. Do you know where that comes from? It comes from your master and the work of God in your heart. It is possible to actually be a slave to something and yet actually consider yourself free, i.e., this is the condition of the non-believer. They think they're free, and they especially think they're free of religion. I'm free of that Christianity bit. Man, I'm so glad I don't have to deal with that sort of stuff. I'm free. But in actuality, they are slaves to their own idols, and they will sacrifice for them. For the non-believer, they believe they're free, but in actuality, they're enslaved to money, career, sex, relationships, gambling, power, notoriety, education, entertainment, uh, achievement, their addictions. Man, they, they cannot get away from it, and they'll sacrifice for them, yet they do so believing they're free when in actuality, they're enslaved. That is their condition. And that was our condition prior to Christ. But look at verse 17. But thanks be to God, though you were slaves of sin, you used to be in that condition, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. That once was your life. But do you see this in verse 17? Obedient from the heart. Christianity isn't like I find it to be most intellectually satisfying religion out there. And hence, I'm going to entertain it. 
or I like certain morals, or I like the fact that it works in relationships or in business. And so I'm going to adopt Christianity as a philosophy for my life. No, a Christian is one who has turned from self and sin, trusting in Christ. And you know what? They are obedient from the heart. Your heart is in it. You actually love the Lord. He is a gracious, loving master, and hence you want to obey him and follow him. That is what a Christian is. That is the gospel. Now, you and I, we're like struggling. And I can see, I mean, I'm, I have a pretty good vantage point up here. And I can see some of you going, oh, there's a lot more than I bargained for this morning. I don't like this. Ugh. Some of you have never read Romans 6 before, and you're like, are you serious? That's in the Bible? And you don't like it. And let me tell you why you don't like it. Because in our American mindset, we pride ourselves on, in autonomy. That we, we are the heir of humanism. We like to believe that we are free to do whatever we want and we are only guided by our own rational considerations. The whole idea of actually being a slave to someone or something, that doesn't work for the enlightened mind. I'm an independent soul myself. I can do whatever I want whenever I want. However, you need to know that uh, ancient people never saw it that way. You always were owned by something or someone. I mean, they had a, whether it be uh, stars, fate, some god, you were always, you always belonged to someone. Jesus, what was Jesus' take on this? Did Jesus think that you were owned by someone? You were a slave? No matter, you were a slave, that was your condition, just depended on who you were a slave to? Well, remember when Jesus said this, you know, hey, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or despise the one and be devoted to the other. Remember that? And then he said, you cannot serve both God and money. Can't have it both ways. You're going to be owned by one. Friends, until you become a servant or a slave to God, you are still a slave to sin. In fact, remember it says in verse 18, he says, he says verse 17, but thanks be to God, though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You literally saw yourself as a servant to do the will of God, to do what is right in his sight. Remember the prodigal son? He convinced his dad, I want all my estate money early. I wish you were dead, but you're not. Take, give me all my stuff. And he takes his money, goes out and blows it. He thinks he's free, Right? And the American mindset says that guy's pretty free and he's living it up. In reality, though, remember what happens? He runs out of money, runs out of friends. Next thing you know, they enslave him. In a sense, he becomes a servant to a pig farmer. So bad is his conditions, he wants to eat the food that the pigs are eating. A pretty despicable situation for a nice little Jewish boy, huh? Is he free? No, he's a slave. You know where he found freedom? When he said, I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to beg him to be a servant. Remember that? And he was received by the Father with warm and welcome arms. That's where he discovered freedom. You know, at a wedding, a man tells his wife, you know, I'm, I'm marrying you. And remember that, till death do us part. Do you guys remember that? You should, okay? Your wife is remembering that, till death do us part, right? And, and with inherent to that statement is that I'm not going to divorce you. I am with you. So how does this new wife, how does she take that? Does she go, <laughs> well, we'll see what you mean by that till death do us part statement. I'm going to spend all of our money as fast as I can. Does she go run around and she turn out to be rude, unfaithful, vulgar, slothful, spiteful? Does she do all that stuff? No, when a woman understands she's unconditionally loved, 
she flourishes. She grows in that kind of bond of devotion. And that's how it is supposed to be for us. When you understand the nature of God and his love. It's kind of like this. You know those master locks? They, uh, they became pretty popular, especially after they did a TV commercial. Remember they shot a bullet through one of those master locks? I'm like, wow, everybody wanted to get one of those because these things work, right? And a master lock takes two chains and it locks them together. You need to know something about the human condition. You and I are literally locked to sin, master lock, and you cannot break it apart. I don't care how much reform, what new leaves you try to turn over, what you try to do to improve your life, you can't fix it. And the only way you can be released from a focus and being dominated by sin is a key called Christ. And he actually literally comes into your life. He opens it up. He unfastens that lock. You are literally released from the domination of sin and he locks you, master locks you to his own life. You're literally united with Christ forever and you can never be separated. Friends, that is the gospel. And what you do, what we're devoted to is going to drive your behavior. So you need to figure this out. Who or what am I devoted to? You remember in the uh, war in Iraq, there were some huge changes that took place in Iraq. And at the end of uh, 2003, there's a writer for Newsweek named Christian Carl, and he wrote this piece called Iraqi Vice. Listen to this. He, he was kind of tracing the behavior in this guy named Ali. Quote, Ali is a young man with little money and no wife. This is all the incentive he needs to take the 90-minute bus ride from his village to Baghdad. As soon as he arrives, the 21-year-old Iraqi heads straight to Abu Abdullah's, and there it cost him only $1.50 for 15 minutes alone with a woman. He goes on to write, but Ali sees the easy and inexpensive access to sexual favors as a big improvement over the days when Saddam Hussein was in power. The dictator strictly controlled vices such as prostitution, alcohol, and drugs. Mind you, he had a different set of standards for his groupies and himself, but he controlled it in his country. And the fall of the regime gave rise to every kind of depravity. So in addition to brothels, Iraqis have their choice of adult cinemas, where 70 cents buys an all-day ticket and the audience hoots in protest if a non-pornographic trailer interrupts the action. Referring to all the newly available immoral activities, Ali grins and says this, quote, Now we have freedom. Is that freedom? Absolutely not. That is slavery. It is slavery in Iraq, and it is slavery in the United States. When, uh, you could think of it this way. Whoever or whatever owns you, whatever you can't say no to, owns you. And if you really want freedom, freedom comes by putting your faith in Christ. You see, the master of our lives, it's going to determine the devotion of our hearts. Is it going to be sin or God? Let me give you something else. The master of our lives will also determine the direction of our lives. Look at verse 19. He says, I am, in, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. I'm using an analogy that appeals to your mind and understanding because to understand the deep implications of what it really means to be in Christ and united with him, it's really hard to grasp. And so I'm using an analogy of slavery for you to understand this. He says, for just as, verse 19, you presented your members, that literally means the parts of your body, who you are, starting with your mind, your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, 
resulting in further lawlessness. And so what he's talking about there is just like you used to give yourself over to sin. And isn't that how it works? You literally think like, well, I can control this, or I'll do this, but not this. I'll drink this, but not that. I'll do this, but not that, right? What happens is you, you start biting into sin, and it is like a vortex, and it starts whipping you around so fast, it takes you places that you never thought you would be. And it takes you there quickly, doesn't it? And it is devastating. And pretty soon you're doing things that you're like, man, I could never imagine myself doing it, and now it's my lifestyle. That is what he's talking about. One break of lawlessness, violation of law, leads to another, which leads to another. It is transgression, it is sin, and it is a downward spiral. He says, that is what you did. You presented your bodies to this. Pick your poison, whatever it was. But now things are different. Look at verse 19. So now, though, see that last half? Present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Just like you once gave yourself over to do whatever you wanted, your own impulses. You remember that? Well, now, with that same attitude, give yourself fully over to God and to his purposes. See everything about your body, mind, heart, tongue, arms, hands, feet, everything about you to him, devoted to him. And pursue righteousness because literally he is your master. And so what happens is it leads to sanctification. That word literally means to be set apart to God and his holy purposes. You are sanctified. You're set apart. And just like you once grew in sinfulness, and isn't it nice that we don't have to advertise how wicked we all were? I mean, isn't that, that's sorry, right? Good thing we don't have to go there. Well, guess what? We want to be growing in holiness, sanctification, Delighting in the will of the master, which you're going to find is going to delight your heart, knowing the goodness and the joy of the Lord. But here is the kicker. Here's the big problem. There are so many Christians, and although they are free, they still live as slaves to sin. Although they've been emancipated and united with Christ, and he, they now have God as their master, they still live as if they are slaves to sin. It's interesting. We have kind of a parallel of this kind of in our country. Remember Abraham's, Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation? When he made that, that resulted in the actions in which eventually led to the abolition of slavery, that slave, slavery became illegal. That means that all slaves on January 1st, 1863, literally became legally free people. And and, and it, was, it was a huge event. I mean, a complete change of status. The one major problem with that is almost all of these African-American slaves who, had na- who are now free, they literally just kept on living like slaves, even though they had a complete change of status. And, I mean, the word spread. As soon as they went out from Capitol Hill, it went across the city, down to the valleys, throughout Virginia, Carolinas, to the plantations in Georgia and Mississippi and Alabama. Slavery is legally abolished. But the problem was that most of these people that had been freed, they didn't know what to do. And so they just stayed living as they did. They did that, even though they were emancipated, all throughout the Reconstruction period. Chuck Swindoll writes of this. He says, The African-American remained locked in a caste system of race etiquette, as rigid as any, has been, ha, any had known in formal bondage. Every slave could repeat with equal validity what an Alabama slave had mumbled when asked what he thought of the great emancipator whose proclamation had gone into effect. And he said, quote, I don't know nothing about Abraham Lincoln, except they say he set us free. 
and I don't know nothing about that neither. I don't know anything about Abraham Lincoln. I don't know anything about freedom. I don't know how to live differently. And so the tragedy was perpetuated. Not only had you had human beings that had been subjected to masters, some of which were cruel, now you had people that were literally legally free, and they still kept on living like slaves. Tragic in our history, and it is tragic now. We have Christians that have been freed from the slavery sin, but guess what? They still live in it as if they have no other choice. And they're, and they're living in it. And when Romans chapter 6, verse 3 says, we've been united. Remember, you've been baptized in Christ. Or in 6, 6, the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. You have been free, but you live like you're a slave to sin. It's a terrible condition. But you need to know that if you have become united with Christ, God is going to bend your will to his. That is how it works. Who is your master? Some of you played athletics. Some of you went on and played college athletics. Remember, uh, hopefully you did some investigation before you went on with college athletics. Just because they are giving you a $1,000 scholarship, hopefully you still investigated the coach. Because you, you meet the coach, but there's something you need to know about the coach. The coach is determined to bend your will or your will to his or hers right? That's how it's going to work. I mean, it's all in life at signing day, and then they're trying to get you to come on to join their team, right? But you show up at that first practice, and all of a sudden you find out he or she fully intends that you're going to do what they say. And that's how it works. We understand that. Or some of you, uh, you have had some military experience. And you remember how cool that was? You know, everybody's really happy. You joined the army, signed up with the Marines. Okay, the recruiter was very happy. There's a little celebration. And then you got off. You're going to go to basic training. And you met this wonderful gentleman who was called your DI, the drill instructor. Remember that? There's one right there for you, right? And you didn't say, oh, this is great. I've got a lot of good ideas of how we could spend our time together. Did you? Did you say that? No. If you thought it once, you were punished, right? You quickly learned that whatever my DI wants, that's what I want. If he wants me to jump, I want to find out how high he wants me to jump. I want to jump as long as it makes him happy. I want to do everything he wants me to do. Why? That's how it works in the military, right? That's how it works when it comes to sin. It will own you. You have the illusion that it doesn't. That's all part of the illusion of being a slave. On the other hand, if you are truly a child of God, God is your master. He sets the agenda. We live to please him. The idea of a self-centered faith doesn't work. In fact, that's what he is addressing here. Your identity determines your activity. How we see ourselves determines how we live our lives. So he goes and says, verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. Kind of like a little reverse here. Remember when you are When you were a slave to sin, the whole idea of doing right before God, whatever that might be, kindness, demonstrating uh, faithfulness, bringing the gospel, reading the word, praying, no, 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 you're free from that. You didn't have to do that, and you didn't want to, and you didn't, right? You were free. You were free in regards to righteousness. So Paul goes, you know, I got a question here for you. Verse 21, therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. What is, what is it that you benefited from your former life of being enslaved to sin? Marcus Rainsford has drawn up kind of an inventory, and he says, kind of follows like this. What are the things 
that you benefited, the fruit, faculties abused, affections prostrated, time squandered, influence misused, best friends wronged, our best interests violated, love outraged, especially a love for God, or to use it, just to sum it up in all one word, you could use the word shame. That's what that resulted. How does, how does this all work? Sin brings death, separation. And you're going ha- to be owned by either God or by sin. If it's sin, then you're going to find yourself a slave to selfishness, lust, bitterness, pride, materialism, worry, uh, drivenness, fear. And let me just kind of play it out, what it looks like. Let's pick one. If you were enslaved to approval, and maybe that describes your life before Christ, or maybe this is hitting really close to home, enslaved to approval, then you are dominated. You constantly have the experience of self-pity and envy and hurt and, and feelings of inadequacy, and, and your feelings are always getting hurt, and feathers are always ruffled because why? It's always about what people think about me. You're a slave to it. Or if you were a slave to success, I want to be successful. Let me tell you what your life looks like. Drivenness, fatigue, worry, and fear, and it dominates you. Friends, when he says in verse 21, these are, what benefit was that? Those things you're now ashamed of. Mike Harriton writes in his book, Glorious Mess, of a time when he was a kid, and they had apparently like this big monsoon rain, kind of just a traditional little rain shower here in Texas. Anyway, it resulted in this gully by, their, by the apartments there in the school. It was filled with like two inches of slimy mud water, okay? And so if you were a boy and you're thinking, this is a great place to have a mud football game. And mud football games are awesome. And hopefully you've all had the experience to do that. First of all, the football becomes like a greased pig, man. It's just going everywhere. And it is so much fun. You can tackle people and they just go sliding. You push people around. It's awesome. It's a lot of fun. And they were having a blast out there. They probably thought they were in heaven, you know? And boys would be boys. They're having a great time. And, and then he noticed that on his uh, friend's shoulder there on Steve, there's just something there. Now, they were, uh, apparently they were next to a, a concrete sewage runoff drain there. And he looks at his friend's shoulder and it's, uh, it's toilet paper on it. And he points it out and he takes a big whiff and all of a sudden he realizes this is a lot more pungent than the traditional mud football game. And they yell out that they're playing in sewage water and these boys all freak out. They all run home. And he writes, talk about instant mental transformation. Sometimes in life, we need our thinking transformed. Sometimes we think we're having fun until we realize we're rolling around in sewage. That is life apart from Christ. It looks like it's fun. It looks like it's fun on TV, right? We're trying to tell ourselves we're having fun. We need all this stuff, right? We need these experiences. But you know what? If you're trying to supplement that for God, that's the stuff that God saved you from. He wants you to find your identity, wholeness, purpose, and salvation in him. Jesus Christ isn't asking people to add him to their sin and just to kind of like, don't you want a little fire insurance policy from hell? Jesus Christ is not looking for people who want high moral values and to just kind of add him to their unregenerate life. Nor is he looking for people who want to be outwardly reformed and yet hold on to the old nature. Nope. He's looking for people who are going to forsake sin because they desire total transformation of being united with Christ. They believe in him and they literally would call him Lord, or you could translate it, Master. Those who will turn from sin and trust him. That is the gospel. And you know, it's really interesting. We have a kind of a propensity 
to tell people, hey, just, it doesn't matter. Just God loves you unconditionally. Ever heard that? God loves you unconditionally. And the non-believer goes, really? He loves me unconditionally. No matter what? Great. I like that. Well, that means I can, uh, I can keep cheating, keep lying, keep sleeping with my girlfriend. I can do whatever I want. I can drink whatever I want, whenever I want, however much I want. I can do drugs if I want to because it doesn't matter because God loves me unconditionally. That's what you keep telling me. I like that. That basically gives me a license to do whatever I want. I like that. Let me tell you the problem with that. Theologically speaking, God loves believers unconditionally. You and I can never be separated from the love of Christ when we are in Christ. But let me assure you, if you're not in Christ, he hasn't given you just a carte blanche. Just go ahead and do whatever you want. I got you covered here. No, you are a slave to sin and you need to be emancipated from sin. And there is one. He is Jesus. He specializes in life transformation. And I've found that when you're tempted to do what is wrong, and you can, man, there is a war going outside, and there is a war sometimes going inside, and you face some very real temptations. It's very helpful to do this when you're tempted to do what is wrong. You want to flee temptation. Get out, move on, change the channel, get away from that computer. You flee from temptation, and it is everywhere, right? The other thing you want to do is you want to focus on Christ and actually thinking and doing something that is honorable. You, it's, it's helpful to pray, but it's also really helpful to actually do something active. Quote a scripture verse, think about something, do something for another person. But you're going to find this. It is becoming a slave to Christ that Paul found the secret of real freedom. That is the freedom from domination of sin, when you literally see yourself as a slave to Christ. You see, the master of our lives determines the devotion of our hearts, it determines the direction of our lives, and finally, it determines the destiny of our future. Look at verse 22. Now, having been freed from sin and a slave to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification. God is bringing about sanctification, setting you apart, making you more mature in Christ, and the outcome, eternal life. Life forever in God's fullness. The fullness of life eternally begins the moment you believe. It is carried on throughout all eternity. In fact, God will give you a body so that you'll be able to experience forever the fullness of joy of God. And that takes us to the verse that we're also very familiar with, and now we're familiar with it in context. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. This was used, wages was used of money that was owed, money that was paid, especially money that was paid to a soldier. Wages of sin is death. A soldier's pay for being in Satan's army is death. And we're not just talking physical death. Eternal separation from God and all the horror that comes with it. On the other hand, amazingly so, but the free gift of God, free gift, not earned, free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the emancipation proclamation has gone out. Nevertheless, the war rages inside and all around. The question is, who or what is your master? Who is it? I'd, I'd want you to figure that out before you walk out those doors. Whose slave are you? If you want hope, you want life, you want forgiveness, that freedom 
is found when Jesus is your master. Have you ever heard the phrase, ship of fools? Uh, It was very common in the medieval motif of literature and art and religious satire. In fact, there was a painting that was made by Herenius Bosch, and he made this painting called uh, Ship of Fools. And here, actually, that's the painting right there. And you have, you have 12 people in it, uh, 10 are in the boat, two have fallen out of the boat, and they are having the time of their life. Look at that. They're busy drinking and feasting and flirting and singing. They're eating themselves into oblivion, and everything is great. There is something that is completely missing from, missing from the ship, and there is no captain, Okay. Uh, you see that there is a guy climbing up that tree there, and he's trying to get to those carrots. See that? But what you probably missed is if you look at the top of that tree, do you see right in the center? You see that? What is that? It's a skull. It's the 13th member, and it's full of all sorts of significance. You see, all these people are just overwhelmed, and they're just having such a great time as they're just meandering through life. They don't realize that they're heading to a terminal end, and that end is death. And that captain is running that ship. All the people think they're having a great time, and it's wonderful, right? In reality, the wages of sin is death, and it leads to their demise. So friends, the life that you and I lead... Well, that all gets determined by the master that we serve. So who really is the Lord of your life? Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for an amazing passage of Scripture. You just lay it out there so crystal clear, we cannot miss it. And so, Father, if there's anyone who has come here today, and they are are currently a slave to sin, but they desire freedom and forgiveness, and to truly know what it means to be owned and cared for by the one who really loves them. Will they turn from self and sin and just pray with me and say, God, I, I am a sinner and you know it. And I turn from myself and my wickedness and I place my faith in Christ and I receive his forgiveness and I ask that you would have everything about my life. And Lord, for all of us, may we have a completely better understanding of what it means to truly be united with Christ Strip away vestiges of a self-centered faith that we might be Christ-centered people for your glory. We ask this as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.